Good morning, Idaho. Hope you're having a wonderful morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on when you're listening to this. Welcome to the Local Yokel Idaho podcast, where we talk about what is going on in the wonderful state of Idaho. Welcome back for Thanksgiving. I hope you all are full of good food and hungry for some Idaho news. Today we'll be talking about Dairy Goldenshin in the Treasure Valley, Idaho's newest investment in hydro, and a conversation that we all love to have in Idaho about traffic in the valley. Hey, glad to have you here today. Please join me for the morning banter where we chat with you a little bit before we get into it. But I understand if you're short on time and prefer to skip the banter, you can use the timestamp that is in the description to jump straight over to the stories. For those that stayed, welcome. Thank you for joining us for the banter. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. I know I did with all the aunts and uncles coming from out of town. It was so wonderful. But before I get into any more of the Thanksgiving stories and stuff, I'm happy to say we have John, my editor, co-hosting with me again today. I am back. And I'd say better than ever, but I don't know if that's true. Thanksgiving was a good week. It was fun. Mine was very different than normal. We had some family over for breakfast and they were over until about one and then they left. And so afternoon was just my family. And so it was kind of fun. We ate pie all day. (laughs) <laughs> so we had quiche in the morning. Okay. And then we made pizza in the afternoon. And so we had pie all day. It was great. Nice. I, I mean, I can't say on Thanksgiving I've had pizza. That's interesting. Did you put turkey on it? No. <laughs> No, I'm not actually a big fan of turkey. There are very few turkeys that I've ever had that I've enjoyed. Oh, really? Why so? Like the flavor? Is it the flavor? Is it the texture? It's the the flavor, the texture, typically the moisture content. Are they like too dry or too moist? Typically it's too dry. So, you know, a lot of people are like, well, if it's too dry, then try the dark meat. Well, I don't like the dark meat. I like the white meat of a bird. But yeah, turkey just, it's not as good. I don't know. I mean, I can understand I've had some turkey that I've eaten in my life that wasn't cooked right, and so it tasted chalky. But I know my mother and stuff, whenever she does it, she will actually flip the turkey around and cook it upside down so the breasts are actually in the bottom of the pan. That makes sense. So instead of the bottom part getting all those juices, the nice breasts and everything up top actually get all that soaking. And so it makes for just so much more delicious, flavorful meat with all the broth and everything. And so it's it's really, really good. But we also had as well. Maybe you went for that instead. Well, we had all of your typical pig products on our pizzas. I will say, though, <laughs> in years past, we've done porksgiving. We've had barbecued ribs. We've done carnitas. We've done sausage. We've done all of the pork products. And so, you know, it was dubbed porksgiving. So I have to ask, because I know with our family, we have kind of different traditional foods that if they're just not there for Thanksgiving, it's not Thanksgiving. You know, grandma's homemade lemon meringue pie, oh. not Thanksgiving without it. We'll make these homemade like masa tortilla type of things that are we use bacon fat with them and it's just that if you if you don't have those it's not thanksgiving do you have kind of like a dish like that with yours you know i have done thanksgiving so many different ways in so many different places that no i, I really don't i was fine with having pizza and quiche yesterday that that was a great thanksgiving one of my favorite thanksgiving memories is when i was a kid my mom one of her relatives passed away and so she went to the funeral which was over thanksgiving weekend and so it was dad my older brother and me and dad was like all right guys here are your options we can either do the turkey and the stuffing and the whole five course meal and we'll pull out the nice china and the silver or big or here or we could do sloppy joes on paper plates and we're like well that's not even a question sloppy joes on paper plates do it get it done and it was great it was you know one of my favorite thanksgivings ever was sloppy joes with dad 
And that was that. So, uh, yeah, no, I <laughs> I don't really have any of those. You grew up in a different family than I did then. <laughs> I, yes. I mean, my mom was very, she loved to pull out the the nice dishes and the silver and the china and, and make all of the food. And whenever I saw the silver and china come out, the only thing I could think about was how long we'd be washing dishes afterwards. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I can see that being a turnoff. I know, don't get me wrong, the kids are not the fondest of cleaning dishes, we'll say that that way. But if you give us the option, it's like, okay, here's what, you know, we regularly consistently have, and it's super low maintenance, it's not grand or whatever. Or, you know, for that special occasion, you know, putting the table out, all the care, all the setting up, the kids really enjoy that. And then something special, it's something different, it's exciting. Yeah, and, you know, I have nothing against people who do that. I just... The, the only thing I see when I see large quantities of dishes <laughs> is the cleanup that needs to happen afterwards. And if there's one thing I am not a fan of, it's washing dishes. To the point that I made a deal with my wife years ago that I would cook all of the dinners if she would clean all of the dishes. You're like, anything, please, nothing but the dishes. Exactly. Anything to get out of washing dishes, I am I am there for. I, I have tried it all, and, and this arrangement seems to be working relatively well. You should get one of those like steam dish cleaners that it doesn't matter how dirty the dish is, you can just drop it in one of the industrial steam cleaning washers. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh yeah. My my dream kitchen is very much an industrial kitchen where everything is stainless steel and you've got a big old Hobart that you can just throw all of your dishes into. Yeah. That's uh that's my dream kitchen. Like I went industrial. I went hard. <laughs> I, went... I want my kitchen to go hard. <laughs> Let's go steampunk almost here, okay? Nothing except for metal can exist in this kitchen besides the food, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no frills. That's how I want my kitchen to be. The rest of the house can be nice and pretty and stuff, but man, if I if I had the kitchen of my dreams, it would be like walking into the the kitchen of a restaurant. I'd be like, yes, this is a kitchen. You're like, I am the trendsetter. Yes. <laughs> This is this is what happens when you put a man in charge of making all of the food. I'm going to make the kitchen the way that I want the kitchen to be so that I can make food best. You're like, hello, I, I am Henry Ford and I have come for the kitchen. That's exactly right. I present to you the assembly line of your life. Yep, yep. <laughs> But transitioning out of the kitchen, a question about the podcast for you, viewer, that regularly listen. We are considering some different formats for the podcast. We're looking at two formats currently to move to for the podcast, and we would love to get your input on them. The first is that we would have the main show as we kind of have it right now that would come out on Sunday evenings, but that show would only be the main stories, so there wouldn't be any quickies, any of the non-commentary banter stuff. But then during the week, you'd have another episode or episodes, so you'd have kind of the quickiest episode. It would be for some of those quickie stories that we would normally have part of the main show, some of the upcoming interviews that we're doing and thinking about, and other fun stuff that that would come out during the week. That way, each one of the segments is smaller, and you can kind of pick and choose what you want and what you're interested in, and it makes it a little easier to share. And then the second idea we had was taking the show that we currently have and shrinking it and then dicing it up across time. So with that said, that you would have the main stories, you would have the banter, you would have the quickies, but each one of them would be more condensed, and so you would have a max of one to two main stories and no more than five quickies per episode. And those episodes would come out on a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so three shows a week. We'd love to get your input on them. There'll be a poll available over there on X slash Twitter and on Spotify for those that follow us over there, so you can go to those polls and vote and let us know. Plus, if you guys have any other ideas of the format that we haven't thought of 
or suggestions or maybe adaptations or different stuff, we'd love to hear. You send it over to me on Twitter, X, or there on email. At the end of the day, we want to make the show something you guys look forward to listening to throughout the week, something easy, something enjoyable, and hopefully educational for you all. Hey, this is Tyler kind of butting in from the future, sort of future. For your case, it'll be on the exact same timeline. But in any case, I forgot in the morning banter script when I was recording with John to add in the last thankful section and specifically a email that we got from a viewer of the show that had something they were thankful for that they wanted to share. So John's going to add this segment in after the fact. We had a wonderful email come in from Thomas or Tom, depending on the way you want to go with it there. He wrote down three points here. First one being, I'm thankful for the grace of our Savior and for the many things that he has provided with us. I'm thankful for my health, my home, and generally the overall happiness of my life. And lastly, he's thankful for the wonderful neighbors and friends he has. Then he added a verse in here that he wanted to share, that your heart's desire would come from God and would be granted by God, that your plans for your life would align with God's plans for your life and may be fulfilled. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Psalms 24 through 5. Quote, this passage from scripture aptly sums up what I am thankful for, the friendship and relationship with those that are all related to the three things that I am thankful for. Happy Thanksgiving, Tom. Which, thank you for sending that email in, Tom. Those are definitely very thankful things to be for, and I couldn't have said it better myself. The grace that God has given us by sending his only son down on this earth to die for our sins is the greatest gift of all, and we should be eternally thankful. Thank you for sharing that. And that closes out this year of the podcast, doing that. Hopefully, I'll try to set a reminder to make sure to do it next year, or my brain might just organically remember it. And now, for all those that have been just chomping at the bit, we can kind of move into the Christmas season with all those different things. Now, coming into our first story, we teased a little bit in the hook earlier. Darigold's expansion in Idaho. This comes by the Boise Dev by Donde. Seattle-based dairy giant that many of us know, Darigold, has announced plans to establish a significant corporate presence in the Boise area, a move that is set to have a considerable impact on the local economy. Darigold, a cooperative of around 300 family-owned dairy farms across Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington, has been a staple in the dairy industry since 1918, offering a range of products including milk, cheese, and coffee creamers. Darigold CEO Joe Coote explained the strategic decision stating, quote, establishing a presence in the Boise area just makes sense as we continue to modernize and globalize our business, end quote. The move is expected to provide Darigold with a greater access to a large agriculture-focused workforce, establish the company as a valued community partner, and position it closer to some of its farm and production operations in the region. While Darigold will maintain a presence in Seattle, the company plans to relocate key functions closer to its farms and processing plants. This move follows Darigold's expansion of its operations in the Boise Central Bench in 2020, which included the addition of a new packaging line. The expansion is a testament to Idaho's thriving dairy industry and its role in the national and global food supply chain. Carrie Anfalt, CEO of industry group Dairy West, highlighted the significance of Darigold's move, stating, quote, adding the century-old brand of the state's lineup of food and ag companies shows the important role that Idaho plays in feeding people around the country and globally, end quote. Darigold aims to secure a space in Boise early next year with plans to spend most of 2024 and 2025 developing the site and staffing up. This move is expected to create job opportunities and stimulate economic growth in the area. 
All that said, I think this is cool to hear. I do know Derry Gold has had a little bit of a bumpy ride because I think it was last spring. Their processing plant over there, they have one in downtown Caldwell, had a fire. And so that one was out of commission. And then they had to send a bunch of their milk over to the plant that's there in Boise. And that one couldn't handle it all. So they had to go send it down to some of their plants that are down south to kind of handle the load. And it was just crazy. And farmers were having issues and different things. But I think they've gotten that all sorted out. And this is really cool to see. I mean, from the info I think I've talked about here in the show, one of the biggest exports that we do here in Idaho is agriculture. And of that, dairy is a huge one. And so I think this is just a logical step. Plus, you're seeing kind of the instability in some of the more left-leaning towns on the coast with Seattle and Portland and California. It just, it became becoming economically difficult and the taxes and different stuff, where then you have Idaho that's like, hey, we already have a great dairy industry. You already have a lot of resources here. Just bring your corporate offices here, and we're way, way nicer on our taxation, and you actually don't have people like burning stuff down all the time and rioting. Yeah, this feels a lot like when a lot of Silicon Valley was moving out to Arizona and Texas where they're getting out of California because it's just exorbitantly expensive. And those places they moved to are much more friendly in terms of cost of living and cost of doing business. And I'm hoping that Boise is much the same way. The downside of that would be the influx of people, because like they said, they're going to be spending the next two years staffing up. So that means that there needs to be people to get hired. My hope would be that people, local people, people who are already here would be able to get jobs. So we'd be able to stimulate the local economy locally. I think there's a high chance of that, mainly because of the the area that Dairy Gold is dealing in, right? It's in milk which is obviously something that Idaho is experienced in. So I have no doubt there's a lot of people that are in the state of Idaho that already know a great deal about it and could be brought on board. But then also on the flip side, you've always got the menial staffing jobs, which I think obviously it's going to be cheaper to hire someone here in Idaho that has that lower cost of living than it is going to be out of state. So I think, I, I, I personally believe I could be wrong in this, that this is probably going to be a big net positive for the state, kind of like what you see with Simplot and some of the other big manufacturing areas in the state that generally, generally, there are pretty smart people and pretty good people to fill the roles that are in the state, and they're often a lot cheaper than it is to try to hire some person that's coming from their huge degree where they spent tons of money down in California to get it or whatever, and then they come up here and they need enough money to pay for that and their home and they're expecting a certain level of comfort rather than the average Idahoan either already has their assets here and homes and experience and stuff and we're we're rather content people I like to think us Idahoans which is good in some ways bad in others yeah no I think I think overall this should be a good thing and at the very least us bringing in more business clientele like that to the the city of Boise but also the Treasure Valley as a whole something tells me that's got to be good for our local economy Now, moving to something that is related to liquid and something that then converts it into electricity. Idaho Water Resource Board approves 11 million in aging infrastructure grants. This comes by KTVB7 by staff. The Idaho Water Resource Board has given the green light to 19 new aging infrastructure grants, or AIG, allocating a total of 11 million to the improvement and security of aging water infrastructure in Idaho's dams. This significant investment will be used to modernize and secure the state's water infrastructure, ensuring the continued functionality and safety of these critical facilities. The board's decision was followed by a tour of the historic Swan Falls Dam, led by officials from the Idaho Power Company. Swan Falls Dam, for context, was the first dam built on the Snake River in 1901, so it's been around for a little bit, has remained 
remained in operation due to diligent upkeep and was updated in 1994. The dam, which originally had 10 generators producing 10,400 kilowatts of electricity, now boasts two hydro generators that produce 27,170 kilowatts of electricity. The approved projects span across various locations in Idaho, with grants ranging from as little as $2,457 to as much as $1.8 million. The projects include the Marysville Irrigation Co. in Ashton, Blaine County Canal Co. in Howe, the Falls Irrigation District in American Falls, and the Grindstone Butte Mutual Canal Co. in Boise, among others. The total cost of these projects far exceeds the grant's amount, indicating significant investment in Idaho's water infrastructure. The board anticipates more IG awards in the future, signaling an ongoing commitment to maintaining and improving Idaho's infrastructure. For information on these projects and Idaho's water and dam infrastructure, people can visit the AIG website. Which, this is a topic that I know can be a little hot button-ish, and at some point I have it on the docket to do some more deeper research as we get closer to the legislative session. Some people, environmentalists in particular, have said that the dams are not a good thing because of the wildlife and everything else. I would appeal to you that if you go out and look and research it across the United States, Idaho has some of the cheapest and I would add, most reliable power in the country. Regularly back east, you hear of power outages and issues and stuff. But here in Idaho, specifically in the high populous area, I know up north with the snow and stuff, you can have more down power lines and outages and stuff. But overall, compared to other states in our population, we have some of the most reliable and cheap power in the country. And I would argue a lot of that comes from all of the hydro infrastructure that we invested in over the last couple of years and keep investing in, that it gives us, I would argue, the most renewable type of energy possible. Plus, there's tons of fishing that the dams create. I want that fishing. As I am environmentalist at heart, I love going and catching those fish and returning them. So the dams are a good thing. Returning them through a natural process of changing matter into fertilizer. Anyway, that's one way to look at. Right? That's, that's in other words, eating. Yes. I do eat some of them. The bass, though, they can stay in the lake. They're fun to catch. <laughs> not so fun to eat, in my opinion. That's funny. Yeah, I don't know. I understand the desire for for not harming the environment. But then again, I also understand the need for good power and reliable power. And yeah, water and rivers and dams are one of the better ways of having that power. So maybe it would make sense for some some people to do some studies about these things. But man, as as we as humans increase our need for power, we need to increase our ability to capture power. And hydro seems like one of the best types of power generation, like you were saying. Yes, it might have some environmental impacts. I would be curious of what those are, though. Because, yeah, when you create a dam, you create a whole new ecosystem. And so, yeah, obviously, the old ecosystem is ruined and destroyed. But is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't know. Because as humans, we're always going to change the area where we live just by living in it animals change the area they live by living in it. Like this, this is a normal thing. Even, you know, even the indigenous peoples, they changed the world that they lived in. They built huts or they put up teepees or they walked through an area. So we're going to affect things and it's going to happen. So you can't just say, well, leave it the way it is. I'm sorry. Even if you exterminate the entire human race, the world will still change based on the things that live in, in the world. So the only way to make a truly static environment is to kill everything. And I don't think we want that. That seems that seems like a bad goal. So, you know, yes, if you change something, you should probably look at the way it's going to it. You should look at the end product and say, all right, so, yeah, dumping nuclear waste into a river, probably not the best thing to do. But 
putting up a dam, yeah, you're going to change the river to a lake on one side and then a river on the other. I don't know. Maybe that maybe that ends up being a good thing. So studies I could see being done, but I, I like I like that we're putting money into our infrastructure. For all the, the pacifists out there, there's a reason that the U.S. military, kind of using this as an example, is such an effective fighting force in the world, is that American strategic doctrine focuses a lot on logistics. We are the number one country in the world that can say, hey, we can take troops in the U.S. sitting in some base in Florida. And we can have them deployed and fully keep them supplied overseas, and it doesn't break a sweat to the U.S. Army's supply chain. To do that takes a lot of focus and logistics and all the, not the fun infrastructure that's needed in logistics to do that. Same with a power system. For that power system to be functional, to do its job, to be reliable and get the power to the user. Cool, you've got this amazing, you know, say, you know, you get your dream nuclear plant or even fusion plant in the future or whatever. It doesn't matter if all the power lines going out to everyone to get that power suck and no one can hook into it and it's unreliable and everything. You see that in third world countries where, say, yeah, that third world country gets an investment from some humanitarian group or from the U.S. or something and they build a big coal plant or natural gas plant or you name it, whatever. But the population can't really use it because the infrastructure to get the power to the consumers isn't there. They, they can't get it and it's not reliable, so they don't rely on the grid any. They rely on their own means. Now, something that I think you could see, and you're seeing it more and more, and I hope it grows, and I don't think you'll ever see the complete abandonment of full-on power grids and utility companies, but for high-populous areas, I think you're just going to only see it grow, which Elon is a champion of this, and I don't know if you've heard of him talking about about this, John. It's called a virtual power grid. And so what that means is as more modern homes all have solar, right? They've got solar panels on their roofs and more houses, more and more and more. And, you know, if I ever get one, I have the money, I'm going to put one in. Also have big like house size power banks, right? In the garage or outside or something that are storing energy, either they're big deep cycle batteries or they're lithium ion battery walls or whatever. What you can do is all those walls and all those houses can hook together onto the grid and then they can all talk to each other and distribute the load throughout the community for the power needed. And so instead of having a centralized like power plant that we've been used to, you have these virtual grids that are just sharing power across the entire system. They've been toying around with that in Australia where they've had really bad power problems and with the help of Elon and some power walls and different stuff. And they've cut, I think, their blackout issues. If I remember correctly, it's like 80 or 70%. And I could see that in more populated areas. Obviously in rural, you can't do that because like, oh, there's only like five or six houses maybe near you or maybe even only two so you're going to rely, need to rely on that big power generation to fill that gap yeah. but well but even still in in those rural areas you have more space for doing smaller solar plants but yeah you you'd probably still need something like each town would have its own little like small nuclear engine maybe like each little small town has a nuclear reactor or something like that something or or whatever type of power is most efficient be it nuclear or or hydro or you know if you're in the southwest then then solar cuz that's always there in the southwest so yeah no i i like that idea but anyway, very encouraging to see the investment there that Idaho is not shrinking from keeping our dams up to date, which is our main generation of power here in the state. So very encouraging to see, and it'll be interesting to see how those dollars are spent and what improvements that will have on the grid as a whole here in Idaho. Now, 
coming to our last story, and I know I keep the last one as our fun or interesting one, which this is an interesting one, maybe not fun per se, but we'll definitely have a fun discussion at it because, you know, us Idahoans love to talk about this topic. Treasure Valley Traffic Woes. This comes by KTVB7 by Justin Core. The age-old topic we love to talk about in Idaho, and no, I'm not talking about the weather. Traffic, traffic congestion in the Treasure Valley, as many of us know, is escalating, and it's not just the patience of drivers. The growing population in Ada County and Canyon Counties up from 32% and 29% respectively since 2010 is leading to more cars in the road, longer commutes, and increased safety concerns. This traffic issue is also impacting the economy and the job market. Stephen Peterson, an associated clinical professor of economics at the University of Idaho, warns that traffic congestion and inadequate roads can cost jobs while local numbers are not available on this. A recent book by engineer and historian Henry Petrosky suggests that traffic delays cost the U.S. economy over $120 billion annually, a portion of which is undoubtedly felt in Idaho. Idaho State Police Captain Matt Sly highlights the safety concerns associated with increased traffic with the rise in speed, impairment, and distracted driving. The margin for error on the road is shrinking. Over the past decade, crashes in Ada County have risen from just over 6,100 to 6,600 in Canyon County, from about 2,700 to more than 4,200, a more than 50% increase. Matt Stoll, the executive director of Compass, the Community Planning Association of Southwest Idaho, predicts a 6.7% increase in traffic volume by 2050, with the population in Ada County and Canyon Counties expected to grow to 1.3 million by 2050. Daily passenger vehicle trips are projected to increase from 1.8 million to 3 million which we all love, 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 love to debate and go on and on about the traffic here. But that was a number I had not seen, especially with Canyon County being the biggest jump there. And it'll be interesting to see the solutions that Idaho Highway Department comes up with in the coming years, because it's a, it's a problem that the whole country is dealing with. It is. And I, we talked about this again a couple of weeks ago. There's a couple different directions you can go. I remember talking about the, the I think it was the mayor of Emmett was saying that, you know, if we don't build it, then people won't come. And to that, I point to Austin and say, they're going to come anyway. So if your population is going to grow, it's going to grow. And so at the very least, we need to face this problem head on and do our best to mitigate the negative impacts of having a growing population. Part of that is figuring out how to solve these problems. Is it building bigger roads? Is it expanding our roads? Is it by creating highways that go in different places? Is it by, I don't know, having a better bus system? Is it by light rail? I, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that we can't be afraid to attack the problem and do something. Because if we do nothing, then the problem will just continue to get worse because people are moving here and they're not going to stop moving here. Right. Which... For me, and I'll walk this thought, and it'll be interesting. I want to get your opinion on it, John. That when I'm thinking of an issue or problem and trying to solve it, the first thing that pops in my brain is someone else has to have run into this issue before me and come up with a solution and done all the trial and error for me. Because as humans, we've been around for quite a bit. There's been other big cities, other things throughout history. Is there a tried and true older solution? It might not be a fancy, like, oh, flying cars, blah, 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 or whatever. Who knows? There might be a really cheap, effective, non, you know, technological advanced way to solve this issue. And so let's look at history. 
over in Europe. They obviously have had a population that has either grown or diminished, but obviously is more dense than we have here in America. And so in cities, I think you see the strategy they've gone for trains. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We're a big part of that. A system of being like, hey, you know, we're not going to put any more into the roads, but, you know, numbers purely. You have one locomotive or one vehicle that can move hundreds of people. And it can do it efficiently. You don't have to worry about traffic because that's basically the only train on that line. Yes, in Idaho, would it be difficult to put it in? Yeah, you'd have to spend money on that infrastructure. You would have to build overpasses so the railway didn't, you know, cause Eagle Road to have to stop or different things. And it would cost money. But I personally feel in the long run, that's going to be better than buses because buses are just going to add to the freeway. And then you're just going to have to pay for the buses and continue to keep paying for the buses and have to build the freeway bigger as more buses are needed. On the flip side, trying to do underground methods of like subways and stuff are Herculean expensive, more expensive than putting the above ground rail because drilling underground is just costly. And then air flight stuff, the technology I don't feel like is there for in-town transportation. Who knows? Maybe by the time we get to 2050, you've got flying cars everywhere and it's a mute point. And especially in Idaho's weather, flying seems to be a dangerous thing. And I feel like rail is the safest approach for that. It may have some growing pains, but that would be my two cents. I would be interested. So you brought up Europe as an example and and that's a that's a good one i would be interested in looking at japan how they do people in tokyo or other outlying cities or china or india the biggest difference i see with those cities be it london or paris or tokyo or shanghai the the difference i see between those and idaho you know the mountain west or the northwest whatever 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 area you would put Idaho in, the the problem is, one, yes, we have to move a bunch of people in a small area, and that is absolutely true. But the other part of that is to go anywhere else is a really long way. Like, you have to drive multiple hours to get to a place. And so for us to be able to, like, we, you have to provide both. Like, you have to provide the ability for people to get from here to Coeur d'Alene. Denver to, I don't know, Bozeman to Seattle. And yes, planes, planes do that. But man alive, planes are annoying. Like I would, I would say a big way of moving people more effectively is just to get rid of TSA. Like just scrap TSA, get rid of them and allow people to do airports simpler. That's going to solve your flight problems of moving people through the air for distances. And then on top of that, yeah, trains seem to be a decent way to go. I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how you solve that problem because you, you need to be able to get people from here to there easily. Here's my poor man's answer. Kind of the same way that we see everything with like uh, paid plans and models. What you do is you have the railroad, right, that's in the inner city and it's optimized for moving people, right? That's what it's doing. It's moving that and everything and you build that infrastructure out, which if you've already got all those locomotives and trains and stuff and those crews that are experienced, right, I don't think it's too much harder with the existing railway we have to move that, you know, going up north or different towns and stuff. So you can have that added connectivity across the state with a pretty reasonably low cost. I feel like Idaho legislate, and I've heard the argument, they're like, well, they bought in this high-speed trade and everything. It doesn't need to be high-speed. The answer I'd give is, for the people who need the affordable option, there's the train. Are you going to get over to Pocatello? Yeah, you're going to get over there. It may take you a bit to get over there, but it'll be cheaper than the plane. 
It'll be cheaper than you regularly owning the car. It will take more time. But if you if speed is a necessity, then you pay for those for a car to own that, to have that, or vice versa, uh, afford to regularly fly, vice versa, up north or anywhere else in the country. But you have these trains as a cheaper option for both long distance and in town. That that would be my argument for it. That we don't need to put high speed rail all over the United States as much as that would be super cool. And maybe down the road once we have it back, because you can. I don't have the exact number, but I remember reading it that when most of the major railways in America stopped doing passenger rail, right? Which we did that, and then Europe did not, and other parts of the world did not. America's kind of an anomaly there. When we stopped doing passenger rail in the United States, and we had a way of doing it, people traveling around the United States on a regular basis like decreased by like 60 or 50%. Because it may have not been the fastest way for people, but it was at least an affordable-ish way to do it because the cost was distributed across that, what's the word I'm wanting, across the regular use of that, oh yeah, you have 50, 60 people on that train. Which, I'm not saying you go for long distance right now, but you can start getting people used to that again, familiarizing themselves with it by having it in town for commuting and stuff, and then you slowly start introducing those more long-distance trains again. But, any case, that clears us out here for the main stories, and uh, we will move into the quickies here. Now, moving into the quickies, these are stories that I thought you guys should hear about, but weren't worth a full commentary and everything. First one here, INEL data breach. This comes by the East Idaho News by Kathleen Hart. Idaho National Laboratory, INEL, has suffered a significant data breach, leading to the leak of sensitive employee information, including addresses, social security numbers, and bank account details. The breach, which occurred last Sunday night, is currently under investigation with federal law enforcement agencies involved. INEL spokesperson Lori McNamara, confirmed the breach, stating that the laboratory has been targeted in a cybersecurity attack, affecting the servers supporting its Oracle HCM system, which supports its human resource applications. Immediate action has been taken to protect employee data, and the FBI and Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency have been contacted to investigate the extent of the data impact. The leaked information, which has been confirmed as authentic, impacts thousands of local workers. A politically motivated hacking group Group has claimed responsibility for the data breach on various social media platforms. Although INEL officials could not confirm the identity of the hackers as of 11 a.m. of the writing of this, the hackers claim that they have access to hundreds of thousands of user, employee, and citizen data from INEL, including names, date of birth, email addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers, physical addresses, and employee information. INEL, which employs thousands of Eastern Idahoans and is managed by the Battelle Energy Alliance for the U.S. Department of Energy's Office. Of nuclear energy is still in the process of gathering information and will communicate more information to employees as soon as possible. Now, moving away from the things that can radiate you into something a little bit more relaxing, final stocking of steelhead in the Boise River. This comes by KTVB7 by staff. Attention anglers, the final stocking of steelheads in the Boise River for this season is scheduled for Monday, November 27th. An additional 130 steelhead will be released into the river, providing a fantastic opportunity for winter fishing. According to a news release, approximately 25 fish will be released at each drop-off location. 
The steelheads, which were trapped at Hell's Canyon Dam on the Snake River, can be identified by the absence of an adipose fin located immediately behind the dorsal fin. Anglers should note that they catch a rainbow trout longer than 20 inches that lacks an adipose fin. It should be considered a steelhead. Anglers are allowed a limit of two fish per day, six in possession, and 20 for the fall season. To fish for these hatchery steelheads, anglers will need a valid fishing license and a steelhead permit, which can be purchased at the Idaho Department of Fish and Games offices or many other vendors across the state. It is important to note that it is illegal to target steelhead without a permit, and any steelhead caught without a permit should be immediately returned to the water. For more information about the Boise River steelhead release, contact the Idaho Fish and Games Southwest Regional Office in Nampa or call 208-465-8465. The five drop-off locations are Glen Bridge, American Bridge, below the Broadway Avenue Bridge behind BSU, West Park Center Bridge, and Barbara Park. So some people catch fish with a fishing pole. Others catch them with firearms. Shoshone County Sheriff's Office seizes 18 firearms. This comes by the Shoshone News Press by Carolyn Bostick. A significant seizure of firearms took place in Pinehurst, Idaho, as the Shoshone County Sheriff's Office, with support from the Pinehurst Police Department and assistance from the local tactical medical unit, executed a search warrant. The operation resulted in the confiscation of 18 firearms, including long-range weapons, homemade silencers, thousands of rounds of ammo, untraceable firearms, and even a miniature working cannon. Quote, this is the largest gun seizure we are aware of for the Shoshone County Sheriff's Office, end quote, the Sheriff's Office reported on social media. In addition to the arsenal of firearms, gunpowder, fentanyl, and methamphetamine were also seized during the Silver Valley Task Force search. A 46-year-old man from Pinehurst was arrested and charged with felony unlawful possession of firearms, two counts of possessions of a controlled substance Schedule II, and possession of paraphernalia related to a controlled substance. Among the untraceable firearms seized were ghost guns, which the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, BATF, defines as unserialized, untraceable handguns and assault-type weapons. Tools for creating these ghost guns were also recovered at the site. The Silver Valley Task Force determined that evidence at the scene suggested the firearms had been fired out of the residence toward other houses in the community. Law enforcement personnel expressed gratitude that the search warrant was executed safely for all involved. The Shoshone County Sheriff's Office emphasized its support for Second Amendment rights, but stated that it would enforce cases involving felony possession of firearms. And talking about taking out unwanted things, Meridian introduces new bulk trash pickup program for 2024. This comes from the Boise Dev by Sydney Kidd. Meridian residents can look forward to a more flexible bulk trash pickup program starting in 2024. The new plan, presented by Chief Staff and Republic Services at a recent City Council work session, will allow for 10 free bulky item pickups throughout the year. Bulky items, defined as items too large to fit in a standard curbside trash can, include non-freon appliances, mattresses, chairs, and couches. Residents will need to schedule these pickups, which can be done by submitting an online form on Meridian's website, emailing Republic Services, or calling Republic Services directly. The pickup will be scheduled for the next collection day. In addition to the new bulk pickup program, Republic Services will continue to offer the December trash pickup in 2024. This service allows for the collection of up to five extra small items, such as a trash bag weighing 30 pounds or less, at each household without the need for residents to schedule ahead of time. 
Information about the new pickup system will be made available on the city's website, through social media, on billing inserts, or via magnets. Republic Services will also continue its fall leaf curbside pickup and Christmas tree recycling programs. And speaking about things about the law and programs, Idaho Chief Bankruptcy Judge Joseph N. Myers passes away at 64. This comes by KTVB7 by staff. Idaho's Chief Bankruptcy Judge Joseph M. Meyer passed away on Wednesday, November 22nd at the age of 64. The U.S. Courts District of Idaho announced his passing with heavy hearts. According to the article, Judge Meyer was a highly respected figure in the legal community, known for his kindness and intelligence. He graduated from the University of Oregon in 1981 and received his law degree from Wilmette University School of Law in 1984. He was appointed to the U.S. Courts District of Idaho Bench in 2018 and became the Chief Bankruptcy Judge in 2019. Threaters Cure Judge Meyer received numerous accolades. In 2017, he was the recipient of the Idaho State Bar's Professionalism Award. He was selected as the American College of Bankruptcy Fellow in 2005 and has been recognized in the Rocky Mountain State's Super Lawyers and Best Lawyers since 2004. Judge Meyer was battling cancer at the time of his passing. While there are currently no planned memorial services, the court will update their website when a date is decided. Now to something a little bit more exciting for all of you probably waiting for after Thanksgiving here. Bogus Basin and Sun Valley Resort gear up for opening days. This comes by KTVB7 by staff. Ski and snowboarding enthusiasts in Idaho won't have to wait much longer to hit the slopes as Bogus Basin and Sun Valley have announced their opening days. Bogus Basin has pushed back its opening day to Saturday, November 25th, allowing for an extra day of snowboarding to ensure ideal conditions for visitors. Nate Shake, director of Mountain Operations, said that the extra day Day of snowmaking would contribute to a better experience for guests and allow the resort to open more terrain sooner. Meanwhile, Sun Valley Resort opened for its 88th season on Thursday, November 23rd, continuing its holiday tradition of beginning skiing operations on Thanksgiving Day. Despite a late start for the winter season, the resort is relying on its snowmaking technology to provide a festive experience for visitors. The resort will open River Run Express and Lower River Run on Thursday with colder temperatures and more snowfall expected in the coming weeks to help build a base layer of snow. Both resorts will offer limited services during their opening days, with Bogus Basin providing access to the Coach Chairlift, Easy Ride Carpet, and Explorer Carpet, while Sun Valley Resort will open River Run Base Lodge and Bar. For more information on passes and updates on the train and lift openings, visit the Bogus Basin and Sun Valley Resort websites or download their respective apps. And coming back down the mountain... Caldwell seeks community input for comprehensive plan rewrite. This comes by KTVB7 by Abby Davis. The future of Caldwell is being shaped. As the city is going over its comprehensive plan, the city's primary planning document for the city. This plan, which is typically revised every decade, is currently undergoing a rewrite after just three years due to its identified issues. Morgan Bessaw, the planning and zoning deputy director, explained that the aim is to make the plan more detailed resolve inconsistencies, and establish a more uniform vision for the city. The city has engaged the services of Arizona-based consulting firm Logan Simpson to assist with the rewrite. The firm is currently in the first of three phases, which involves collecting feedback from community members. Joe Moss, a planner with Logan Simpson, said that they are conducting one-on-one -on -one interviews with residents to understand what they want to see in the comprehensive plan. Bessaw added, that they are interested in learning what kind of development people would like to see in Caldwell, which could include more townhomes, 
small patio homes, and apartments. A live questionnaire is available for residents to fill out until December 10, and there will be in-person and remote information sessions about the rewrite in the new year. The city plans to develop a draft after collecting feedback, followed by a series of revisions. The goal is to adopt the revised plan by spring of 2025. For more information about how to get involved, residents can visit PlanCaldwell.com. And speaking of city councils and planning-related things, there, we've got one here that kind of seems to have backfired a little bit. Pocatello's proposed sign ordinance faces opposition from business owners. This comes by the East Idaho News by Logan Ramsey. Proposed changes to the city's ordinance in Pocatello have sparked a wave of dissent among local business owners and advertisers. The changes, which would apply to billboards and electronic signage, proposed to limit the hours during which signs can be illuminated at night and ban the construction of new buildings. Billboards. Many business owners have voiced their opposition to these changes, arguing that they would make it harder for businesses to advertise and potentially infringe on the right to commercial speech. Frank Newding, a commercial realtor, argued that the existing code is business friendly and should remain as it is. During a recent public hearing, one citizen spoke in favor of the change, while 15 others from various backgrounds voiced their objections. Some critics have questioned the validity of the survey results supporting the ordinance, arguing that they did not accurately represent the public's views. The public hearing will continue at the next meeting on December 13th, where further discussion will be held. Once the public hearing is officially closed, the Planning and Zoning Commission will vote on whether to send the proposed changes to the City Council with a pass or do not pass recommendation. The final decision on whether the changes are adopted will be made by the City Council. Despite the opposition, Thomas Clean, the only person to speak in favor of the proposed changes, expressed his delight that the changes were being considered, citing his long-standing issue with the city's billboards. And now that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you for listening to the entire podcast. I sincerely hope you found it enjoyable and valuable. If we missed any important points or provided incorrect information, please feel free to reach out to us via email at localyokelidaho2022 at gmail.com or on Twitter by tweeting me at localyokelidaho. With the small team we have, we're not able to cover everything, but we do our best to cover the most important and interesting stories. Thank you for your continued support and assistance. That's all for now. I wish you fantastic rest your week. Godspeed.